And this morning we'll look at Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 36. This is Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit was poured out and people from different nations heard the wonders of God proclaimed in their own tongue. And Peter's explaining what is happening. We pick it up at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up loosening the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we do thank you once again for your word. And it is the word that tells us about Jesus Christ, about his life, about his death, about his resurrection, and about his ascension. Father, send Your Holy Spirit to us this morning so that we can understand the Gospel. And Father, many of us think we have a clear understanding of the Gospel, but the truth is our understanding can never be clear enough. And Father, may we make sure that we have responded appropriately to the Gospel. For this is a matter of life and death. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus, whom you have made both Lord and Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this is a great holiday that we are celebrating this morning. Uh, do any of you know what holiday it is? The Ascension. Norbert, you're a week ahead. <laughs> Yeah, in your bulletin, it says Ascension Sunday, and in some ways, it's hard to separate Christmas from Good Friday, 
from Easter, but in some ways, this is my all-time favorite holiday. I absolutely love the ascension of Jesus Christ. Now, just out of curiosity, how many of you were raised in churches that celebrated Ascension Sunday? How many of you were raised in churches that celebrated Ascension? Okay. Hardly any. That is a tragedy. And that probably explains why Ascension Sunday, or just the Ascension of Jesus Christ, the doctrine of the Ascension, is one of the missing gems of the Reformed and the Evangelical Church. And I really do believe that it is a gem. It is a crucial doctrine. It's not just one of those marginal doctrines on the edges that we can take or leave. It is crucial. Why do I say that? Because it relates to the Gospel. And I hope we all agree that the Gospel is central to Christianity. Now, let me remind you that Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, and this is an evangelistic message. This is the Gospel. He is concerned about the Jews responding to his message so that they will be saved. And let me tell you where we're going, and I'll give away the ending of the story. The Gospel is all about Jesus Christ from beginning to end. And we have four simple basic points this morning that we'll see in this text. Peter is going to talk about the life and ministry of Jesus. And then he's going to talk about the death of Jesus. And then he's going to talk about the resurrection of of Jesus, and often that's where we stop. That's not where Peter stops. Peter has a final point, and he goes on and he talks about the ascension and reign of Jesus Christ, which is the climax of his gospel presentation, not just another point. It's the climax of the gospel message, it's where he's going. If people were losing interest throughout his message, he would, he would say, now stick with me. Stay with me to the end. And you say, well, what's the end? The end is the exaltation of Jesus Christ where he is reigning at the right hand of God. That's where he's going. And we should ask this question ahead of time. Why is he going there? Because the most simple confession of a Christian is this. Jesus is Lord. We see it throughout the Bible. Jesus is Lord. Romans 10.9 If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. That's what Peter's after. He's not after Peter inviting Jesus into their hearts, signing on the dotted line. He's interested in people confessing Jesus Christ is Lord. He is equal with God the Father, and He is the reigning and ruling Lord, and He's calling upon people to confess that. But people will not confess that, and they will not be saved if, this should be obvious, we do not preach that Jesus is Lord. And if we leave that crucial element out of our gospel message, people may not respond appropriately. They may believe that Jesus is Savior, but not bow before His Lordship and be saved. Much is at stake here. And I really do fear that because of our truncated gospel, our limited gospel that 
doesn't include all the elements that it should. Many people who think there are Christians are not Christians because they are not submitting to the Lordship of Christ. They might say, yes, I'm a Christian, but their whole life is antithetical to the Gospel. And they don't even see the inconsistency because they don't realize that yes, we have to believe in Jesus, we have to have our faith put in Him, and we're saved by that alone. But when we actually put our faith in Christ, we are confessing that He is Lord and bowing before that. So this is very important. So let's look at Peter's sermon. And again, four points. He begins with the life and ministry of Jesus. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. And they all knew who He was. A word about Jesus had spread in the first century. And then he says, A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. So he talks about mighty works, wonders and signs. In other words, miracles. But they're not just naked displays of raw power. They are meant to point beyond something. And you'll recall from the Gospel of John that John never uses the word miracle. He uses the word, you remember? Signs. Exactly. Because the miracles are meant to point to something. And they're meant to point to the fact that Jesus really is God. And they point to the fact that you can trust everything He said. It's interesting. In John 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night because he was afraid of what all his friends would think. So he comes to Jesus at night. And this is what he says. Rabbi... We know that you are a teacher come from God. How do you know that? That's pretty bold. We know you're a legitimate teacher from God. You're a legitimate prophet. How does he know that? For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. It's very obvious that God was with Jesus. That's the only explanation for feeding 5,000, feeding 4,000, helping the blind to see, the lame to walk, raising the dead, walking on water, calming the storm. The only way that Jesus could perform miracle after miracle after miracle is if God was with him. And that attested to the fact that God was with him. Therefore, everything he said was true. When Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. God attested to the fact that what he was saying was true based on the miracles. And notice very clearly what Peter says. God did this all in your midst. Many of the Jews saw it. They were fed that day. They were a part of the... They saw it. And he goes on and he says, as you yourselves know. Again, he doesn't need to say anything. You know it. You were there. You saw it. If you weren't there, you have two, three, maybe a dozen friends who saw the miracles for themselves and told you about it. You know that what I am saying is true. So he moves on to his second point to talk about the death of Christ. 23. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. How that much must have stung. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now, let me, let me give you a big word and then I'll explain it. Uh, theologians refer to this verse right here as describing concurrence. 
concurrence. Before you fall back, let me explain it, okay? Concurrence, uh, you might use this word, uh, convergence. Two things are coming together or converging here. The sovereignty of God in the death of Christ and the responsibility of man in the death of Christ. Peter makes it very clear. This Jesus was delivered up on the cross according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This wasn't an afterthought. Peter is basically saying, I, I want it to be real clear in your mind. This wasn't an accident. Before God ever created the world, God had planned that he would redeem mankind by sending Jesus to die on the cross to atone for our sins. This wasn't an afterthought. But he's also very clear. Yes, this was part of God's sovereign plan. And at the same time, you crucified him. Maybe you didn't do it with your own hands. Maybe you did it through lawless men, but you're responsible for his death. Yes, God is sovereign, but you are responsible. Those come together. And it's very important. We see the same thing in Acts 4 if you turn ahead. The believers are praying and we see in Acts 4.27, they say, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God's plan can never be thwarted. The death of Jesus Christ was part of God's plan all along. And the people of Israel are responsible for His crucifixion. And Peter makes it very clear. Now, at this point, you'll notice, this is all he says about the death. From here, he moves on. Now, in our Gospel presentation, we need to say more about the death of Christ. By the way, I think we need to say more about the life of Christ. I think often we move through our gospel presentation very quickly that Jesus died for your sins. You need to put your faith in Him. I think we need to back up a little bit, start at the beginning and explain who Jesus is and to make sure it's very clear in their minds. Do they really believe that He's the Son of God? Do they really believe what we said in our creed this morning? That who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. Do you believe that? Because if they don't believe that, there's no sense in going on. I think the Jesus that many people believe in is not the Jesus of the Bible. He's not the Jesus who came down from heaven. So we need to make it very clear who Jesus is. We can't assume this anymore in our culture. We can't assume that when we talk about Jesus, everybody knows who we're talking about. Everybody does not know who we're talking about. Make sure they know what we're talking about. And of course, when we talk about the death of Christ, we have to go into greater detail and talk about the fact that He died on the cross in our place, taking our punishment upon Himself so that we could be forgiven. Um, Peter doesn't get, in, get into that for whatever reason, uh, but we need to be very clear as to the perfect life He lived and why He died on the cross. Peter moves on to talk about the resurrection of Christ. 24. God raised Him up, loosening the pains of death because it was not possible for Him to be held by it. Absolutely impossible for Jesus to remain dead. Now, why is that? 
Let me give you two reasons that are not mutually exclusive. One reason that Jesus could not remain dead is due to the fact that Jesus never sinned. That's very important. All of us in this room are going to get sick and we're going to die. And it's not just because we didn't come to Kelsey Yo's nutrition class. Boy, if we only were healthier in what we, what we ate, we could live forever. No. We're all going to die because we're sinners. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. See, we're all going to die because we're sinners. Jesus never sinned. Therefore, it would be the greatest injustice of all if this sinless man remained dead, if he received the punishment reserved for sinners. That's one possibility. Another possibility is that he couldn't stay dead because God had prophesied that he would raise him from the dead. And by the way, I said these two reasons aren't mutually exclusive. Let me take it a step further here. The first reason is actually given in the second reason. In other words, the fact that he was holy is given in the prophecy. This is what David says, and this is from Psalm 16, 8 through 11. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or the grave or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. That's the Psalm of David from Psalm 16. Now, Peter, being a good Bible teacher, says, basically, brethren, men of Israel, there's one of two applications here. David is either talking about himself or he is talking about the Messiah. Which do you think it is? And Peter says, let me help you out. Verse 29, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence, and no one's going to argue with them, about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and... His tomb is with us to this day. Here's his point. David is not talking about himself. And I'm confident because David died right over there. He was buried right over there. And he's still right over there. Which means hundreds and hundreds of years later that his body saw corruption. Alright, so David wasn't talking about himself. So, who was he talking about? Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. David must have been talking about the Messiah. And God enabled him to see that he would raise up the Messiah from the dead. And notice what the psalm says. You will not let your Holy One see 
corruption. Holy people do not stay dead. That is a punishment for sinners. So God raised him from the dead because he was holy. And of course, that fulfilled prophecy that David gave. And remember, Peter's audience is Jewish. So he is using the Jewish scriptures to prove to them that Jesus really is the Messiah that God had promised to Israel all along in their scriptures. Now, it's at this point that we might go on to 32 and say, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Now, we, of course, are not eyewitnesses, but we will testify to the fact that he is alive. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. Remember that, that hymn? We pray. He answers. He is alive today. And often, as I said earlier, we stop right here with the Gospel. We think the Gospel is the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, and it is. But again, let me remind you, Peter does not stop here. He is not done with his Gospel presentation. He has one more point, and it is the most important point. His, his Gospel presentation is growing in emphasis. It's, it's one thing to have a man who does miracles, and then it's another to be responsible for his death, and then it's another to have him come back. Uh-oh, he's come back to life. It is yet another to have him exalted at the right hand of God. So Peter is, is upping, upping his gospel presentation with each point. So now we come to the final point, the ascension coronation of King Jesus, 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. This is Peter's explanation of Pentecost in a verse. What you're seeing is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and guess who did it? Jesus did it. Jesus did it. He went into heaven. He got the Holy Spirit from the Father and together with the Father, He has poured out what you are seeing and hearing. He is responsible for what you are seeing. And then He goes on. For David did not ascend into the heavens. And again, now that He said that Jesus had ascended, he said, He's saying basically, if we could read between the lines, and I'm going to prove it to you from Scripture. For David did not ascend into the heavens. In other words, once again, in this psalm, and this is Psalm 110.1, David, once again, he's not talking about himself. Because he never ascended into heaven. His body is not in the heavens. His soul may be in the heavens, but his body isn't. His body is right there, over in that tomb, right over there. But he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The most quoted and alluded to Old Testament verse in the New Testament is Psalm 110.1. This psalm right here. Another way of saying this, we could, we could ask, what, what is the favorite verse of the New Testament writers? And if we were to answer that question by sheer frequency, we would say Psalm 110.1. That was their favorite verse. They just loved Psalm 110.1 because they were quoting it all the time. Well, the first makes this psalm real clear 
was Jesus. And I'd like you to turn back to Matthew 22 to see how Jesus used it, and then we'll talk about how Peter uses it. Both these meanings are very, very important. Matthew 22. Let me just give you the context. This whole uh, passage is actually fascinating. Uh, Psalm 22:15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his talk. And they asked him about taxes. Why about taxes? Because taxes are always controversial. If you're paying attention to the next election, you're going to see the controversy with taxes. Uh, for well over 2,000 years and even longer, taxes have been controversial. We'll ask Jesus about taxes. That gets every politician. But he answers it brilliantly. I'm not going to go into all the details. So then, 23, the same day, the Sadducees. So the Sadducees are listening and they're saying, well, the Pharisees gave it a try. Let's see if we can do a little better. So the Sadducees came to him and they, and they who say there is no resurrection asked him a question saying, Teacher Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died and having no children left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? So they all had her. Now, they're asking about the resurrection. They don't even believe in the resurrection. Again, it's meant to be a trick question. And Jesus is saying, none of these men, uh, you don't have to worry because there is no marriage in the resurrection. Not like that. The ultimate marriage is Jesus Christ and His bride, the church. So he answers that question. 34, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And then one of them being a lawyer. Let's get a lawyer. They know how to make things difficult, right? <laughs> Lawyers are always tricky. Just read what they write. <laughs> Asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? And Jesus answered that brilliantly. So, after a day of questions, we have what I'm going to call the question of the day. Verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. You guys love questions? Have I got a question for you? What do you think about the Christ? In other words, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they thought, oh, come on now. You can do better than that. That's easy. My, my five-year-old son can answer that. I'm sure they were very confident, very cocky. He's the son of David. And that is correct. That is true. But that's not the only answer. He said to them, how is it then that David in the Spirit, and I like that he kind of throws that in there, this is what David says, and by the way, let me remind you that he was inspired by the Spirit of God when he wrote this. How is it that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord? Have you ever heard of a father referring to his son as Lord? And then he quotes Psalm 110.1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. What's implied here? 
Not only is the Christ the Son of David, He is also the Son of God. Which is why David refers to one of his descendants as my Lord, my Sovereign One. God the Father said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. That's pretty clear as well. God the Father saying to one of David's descendants, sit at my right hand, Lord, until I make all your enemies your footstool. If, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And I like this. And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day on did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. <laughs> Backfired. He answered all their questions. He had one question for them. They couldn't answer it. Didn't work. So Psalm 110.1 is about Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh, and it is about the ascension. Um, I love to say that my eschatology, in a nutshell, my eschatology in a single verse is Psalm 110.1, the psalm found right here. And I'd like to ask two questions. When did Jesus begin His reign at the right hand of the Father? At the ascension. The answer is not... He will begin His reign at the second coming when He sits on David's throne in Israel. That is not the answer. The answer is the ascension. It's very clear right here. He ascended and He sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That's when He began His reign. So right now, yes, He's interceding on our behalf, but He is ruling and reigning over the nations right now. And then I love to ask this question. And my second question is, if He's reigning right now, for how long will He remain until the second coming? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. For how long? Until I make your enemies your footstool. Until I subdue all your enemies. And again, this, this is found throughout the Bible. And I, I think we just look at this and we don't really take it seriously. But the Bible is very clear about the reign of Christ. This is what we read in Hebrews 10.12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, there's His death on the cross, He sat down at the right hand of God. Now, in this presentation, it skips right over the resurrection. It goes right from the death of Christ, atoning for sin, right through the ascension of Christ, where He's sitting, literally, at the right hand of God the Father, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. author of Hebrews says the same thing. He's reigning and He's going to sit there until His enemies are made a footstool for His feet. So, right now, we are living between the ascension and the second coming of Christ where He is ruling and reigning over the nations. And there's a couple of ways in which Christ can, can subdue His enemies. Number one, He can subdue them by converting them, right? You can do that with your enemies. You can win them over to your side. That can happen or they can be crushed like pottery. They can be dashed 
to pieces. And let me remind you that Peter began this message by saying the day of the Lord has come. Therefore, the Holy Spirit is poured out and there's going to be great judgment coming upon Jerusalem, which was illustrated with the signs on the earth below, the blood, the fire, the vapor of smoke, the sun turning to darkness and the moon to blood, which Jesus said would come upon that generation. And why would it come upon that generation? Because they killed Jesus. Notice Peter says it again at the end of verse 36. This Jesus whom you crucified. He is not letting them off the hook. He said it earlier and he's saying it again. You killed him. You're responsible for his death. Now, what I want you to see is is this is very serious. If you like, you can turn to Matthew 23. In Matthew 23, we have the seven woes to the scribes and the Pharisees. And then in verse 34, we read Jesus saying this, Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and will persecute from town to town. So that, now listen to this, this is very literal, so that on you, you, point the finger, you guys, on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and on the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And then you're going to read the Olivet Discourse of Jesus talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. He's going to say the same thing. I tell you the truth. Everything is going to come upon this generation. Why? Because that generation is responsible for the death of Christ. They said, His blood be on us and our children. And God said, okay. And judgment was coming. And Peter reminds them, you're responsible for the crucifixion of Christ and judgment is coming unless you repent. And this is very important as well. Because we are calling people to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? Because we want them to be saved. Okay, very good. Saved from what? Saved from a purposeless life? Saved from an unhappy life? Saved from a miserable marriage? Saved from a dead-end job? Saved from a hopeless situation because they have cancer? What is it actually that they need to be saved from? The judgment of God. The wrath of God. We need to make that clear. I know it's not comfortable. I know we would like to say, God loves you. Has a wonderful plan for your life. Friend, that's not the gospel. That's a lie. God is angry with the wicked every day. And they're going to hell. How can you call that a wonderful plan? What we do have is a wonderful God who intervenes on behalf of sinners, which is why He is offered Christ. But we need to be very clear that people need to be saved because they're guilty sinners. And here's what God has done to bring about salvation. He's offered Jesus. He gives us Jesus. Now, I love 36. This is basically the end of the message. Let all the house of Israel therefore know with certain. And I think Peter is saying it like this. I don't know exactly, but this, this is how I think the mood is. 
Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified Lord Christ. He is the reigning Lord. And He's preaching that because they will not be saved unless they confess Jesus Christ is Lord. And that's so important. That's why Jesus has been exalted. Philippians 2. That great passage beginning in verse 8. And being found in human form, Jesus humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has, not God will, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord. Lord, To the glory of God the Father. What is the purpose of the ascension of Jesus Christ? The purpose is that everyone would confess He is Lord. Now, at this point, in a message like this, many pastors would give an invitation. And I've been asked on more than one occasion, why don't you give an invitation or, or an altar call? Let me give you at least two reasons why I don't. First of all, Jesus Christ is reigning at the right hand of God. This is not something that we should really call an invitation that you receive a graduation invitation. Wow, maybe we should go, maybe we shouldn't. This, this is kind of a nice invitation. Um, you can call it an invitation if you like. Um, I was thinking through this. We have one example of an invitation in Matthew 22. King is going to get married. Go out and invite everybody to the wedding feast. That's the picture of salvation. But to be a little clearer, I think that what we have is not so much an invitation as we have a command. And let me give you an example from later on in Acts 17. Paul is preaching in the Areopagus to the men of Athens. And in verse 30 of Acts 17, he says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Why don't I give an invitation? Because this is not an invitation. This is a command. Jesus Christ is Lord. God commands you to repent of your sin. He commands you to put your faith in Christ. He commands you to bow before Jesus Christ and confess that He is Lord. That's a command. And if you disobey, you will be judged. This is not an invitation. Today, God commands you, me, every single one of us this morning, He commands us to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And moreover, and this is another mistake, He doesn't command us to make Jesus Christ our Lord. And this is why I say that. You've probably heard that as well. Make Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior. That's not the command here. Jesus Christ is the Lord of everybody in this room, whether you're saved or not. 
Jesus Christ is the Lord of every single American. Jesus Christ is the Lord of every single Mexican, every single Canadian, Iranian. Go right on down the list. Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You say, well, I didn't vote for him. Doesn't matter. Barack Obama is your president, whether you voted for him or not. And Jesus Christ is Lord of all, whether you voted for him to be your Lord or not. It is not up to you to make Jesus Christ your Lord. He already is your Lord, your sovereign, your judge. It is up to you to be obedient to the command and bow before him and pledge allegiance to his lordship. That's what the call is. That's the gospel. And if we would be clear on the gospel, maybe we would have more genuine converted Christians because we'd be making it very clear what Christ is calling them to so they could accept it or reject it. But we have so many skewed views of the gospel. It's terrible. And I really do mean it's terrible because how many... I, I really do fear, one of my greatest pastoral fears is that hundreds and thousands of Americans alone think they're Christians and they're not because they've been told, if you believe in Jesus, if you ask Him to come into your life and help you out, He'll do so and you're a Christian. And really, Jesus is, is, is just treated like, like a genie in a bottle. But He'll come and, and He'll help you with that marriage and that life that has no meaning and no purpose. And, and He'll give you meaning and purpose and happiness and satisfaction. But are they ever told that He's Lord and that they have to submit to Him even if that means following Him unto death? See, this is what we do. We make it easy for people to become Christians. You know what Jesus did? He made it hard. People will come to Jesus and they say, Ah, I want to follow you. And Jesus would say, Not so quick. You know what? Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. Son of man has no place to lay his head. Would you follow me if it meant you didn't have a home? Yeah. See, he didn't just make it easy. So you got to count the cost up front. So, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. Let me just go and take care of my father before he, before he dies. And Jesus said, let the dead bury their dead. Said, wow, that's, that's so harsh. He said, anyone who puts his hands to the plow and looks back isn't, isn't fit to follow me. You know, you got to leave father and mother behind. Come, follow me. Actually, he said it even stronger on other occasions, didn't he? Unless you hate father, mother, brother, sister, son, daughter, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. Unless you love me more than everybody else and will follow me no matter what the cost, you can't be my disciple. See, again and again, and Jesus would make it hard. He'd say, now I want you to think about what I'm calling you to do. This is not an easy decision. This is a life-altering decision. And we need to let people know Jesus is Lord, which means He can command anything He wants of you. Absolutely anything he wants. He can say to you at any time, I want, I want you to leave that relationship. I want you to sell that possession. I want you to go to that country. You can tell us wherever we want. And because he's Lord, we have to say, yes, Lord. Why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? The answer is simple because he's not really Lord. That's the climax of the gospel. Jesus Christ is Lord. And we have to bow before that. That's what He's calling us to. That's what He commands. When it comes to Christianity, really it's all or nothing. There really is no 
halfway, half-hearted Christianity. Let's close in prayer. Father, we serve a great God and a great Savior. Thank you for Jesus. Father, I tremble when I think about the Lordship of Christ because I tremble when I think of how often I call Jesus Lord, but I sin. Father, this is very sobering. It's very serious. Father, help us to see Jesus Christ reigning at your right hand. And I pray that you would enable all of us to confess that he is Lord. I think of Paul saying, no one can confess that Jesus Christ is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. We cannot do this on our own. So send the Holy Spirit so that we can genuinely and sincerely confess that Jesus Christ is our Lord and we will follow him as his disciples. Amen.